Hello, everyone. A very, very warm welcome to all of you guys on this amazing episode with Akshay at Founder Thesis. I'm Shomdatta Singh, founder and CEO of Asidus Global Inc. We are a next-gen e-commerce accelerator helping brands sell globally. I am particularly proud of this episode of the Founder Thesis podcast, as we are not only featuring a phenomenal founder who has stayed out of the limelight, but a rare serial female founder who is now building her third business. Shomdatta Singh is not only a fearless entrepreneur, but is a fighter who overcame great odds in her personal life. She started her first venture while still pursuing her graduate degree, and that venture was acquired and gave her the capital to start her next venture in the e-commerce space in the US, which was eventually acquired for millions of dollars. Shom is currently building Asidus as her most ambitious venture yet, which is on track to hit an annual GMV of $500 million. Stay tuned for Shom's freewheeling conversation with your host, Akshay Dath, where she talks about spotting unserved opportunities using data and gut and shares her take on the D2C revolution. That, that's a very, very uh, exciting question, Akshay. And I think the best people who are suited to answer this are my parents. But in their absence today, I will take the, uh, you know, the, the moral responsibility to share. Uh, what I vaguely remember in the first few years of my life is that I used to get very excited when I would see children, one, one and a half years, would start walking. And the thing that always, um, you know, made me want to push myself is that I was wheelchair bound till about three and a half. And the reason being because I was born with a cerebrospinal tumor. Um, imagine both parents are doctors and uh, the irony of life that their first child being delivered to them, uh, the doctor tells my mom that, uh, you know what, she has a cerebrospinal tumor that is, is in such a pivotal place that if we operate, the chances of her losing her motor functions is inevitable. And I tell my mom this, you took a risk with me the moment I was born. Therefore, I've always had this tenacity to take risks all my life. And that's what entrepreneurship is. But uh, the first few years were interesting because, you know, um, my dad... How did you work. How did you learn yeah. to walk then? Uh, did you get the so, surgery? So, no, yes, yes. Multiple surgeries. I have a silicone rod in my back. Uh, about seven surgeries in and out of hospital for the first 12 years of my life. Uh, you know, uh, there are a few organs that I don't have, but uh, they're all manageable. Yes. Wow. Uh, and and uh, that's super amazing, right? Means you wouldn't remember my story if I had an ordinary life. The reason yeah. they say ex extraordinary experiences make extraordinary people. That's what my dad always told me because he, he gave me perspectives of life a different way. You know, uh, when somebody would say disabled, uh, you guys should consider having another child. My dad said, yeah, of course, she is disabled because she hears the word able in it. It's perspective. So he always taught me to see and hear things differently. And, and that's why the outlook to us, my you know, what I see in my life is very positive, right? It means I, I don't creep about the small things. I don't feel bad about the small instances. I think, okay, they're an opportunity. So, um, so yeah, that's what the first few years were. I started walking in about four, four, four years, uh, four years and a few months. Um, and, um, I had excellent, uh, you know, support from some of the best doctors, some of the best physiotherapists. And uh, 
as I as my first part of the school was not like a regular going, you know, child at school. I didn't have my kindergarten and all. I directly went uh, to uh, BSS when I was in my second standard. And and guess what? Even though I, and homeschooling was not a big thing that time, you were not homeschooling was not something that was a very prominent concept in Kolkata, at least where I was born. But um, I wrote the exam, the entrance exam for the second standard, and I was second uh, in the class. So, so, so interesting times. That's what I say, right? You know, so being able to walk the first time when everybody else was running to uh, homeschool the first few years to getting into a phenomenal school, which changed my life. And, and uh, yeah, I'm happy to share more. Um, you have a little bit of a, a streak of a performer, uh, just in the way you articulate, the way you express yeah. yourself. Uh, yeah. Where did that come from? You, you know, it, it's very much like a like a showman in the sense, like like oh, a larger than life uh, approach of talking, of articulating. Uh, where, where did you that know, come from? My dad. You know, uh, you hear this often that uh, a father is a girl's role model. But if you really meet my dad, Akshay, you will understand why he's an exceptional human being. My dad is a student of Ramakrishna Mission, and he, while he became a very successful doctor in his later years, he was uh, a brilliant musician, a phenomenal theater artist. My dad would do monologue in Academy of Fine Arts, and uh, you know he he wrote poetry. So I grew up around a man who believed that your right brain is the most important aspect because the left only knows how to execute. Unless you are very creative. You can't create a place for yourself. And only creative people create legacy. So I'm trained in Hindustani classical. I play the sitar. I play the harmonium. Uh, you know, so these are things that I grew up in. As a student, because I couldn't, I was not very active in sports in my, you know, younger years. I had to make it up somewhere, right? So I was brilliant in elocution. I would do theater. I would do things that had a lot of attribute of showmanship, right? Over time, you know, I could I could even run and, you know, take on other sports, but I never could swim and do other things with children my age could. So this was where I made up, uh, you know, for it. And over time, I figured that my ability to interact with people is a blessing from Goddess Saraswati. Not everybody has it. Your oration, your, you know, your ability to basically engage with people. It, unless you have that aura, it doesn't happen. But it comes from my dad, completely from my dad. Amazing. How did you land up in the U.S. for higher education uh, like um it was always see it was always uh, on my vision board so uh, my dad always told me that manifestation is insanely powerful and uh, if, if, let me give you a little bit of background about where this comes from right so because i was the first former years of my life were not like a regular child doing the things they would do my dad uh, used to put me in a library where he said consume as much knowledge as you can because one day that will be your differentiator Right, so uh, there's this beautiful sh saying in Sanskrit in Rigveda, "Shanashaha kanashas chayva vidyam arthamchasadhe, shanatyaage kuto vidyam kanatyaage kuto thanam." A man or a woman is wasted if the knowledge is not put to the right use, and money is wasted if it doesn't multiply. So that's the grooming of my father, and and what happened was because I had to consume so much, you know, my my interest in economics came in, and. Even though there was nobody in my family, uh, you know, who came from that background. But that was what grew my interest because I figured that that was the fundamentals of everything in an economy, in a country, in overlay, right? Businesses were built on that. It's a theory of science and art. And and that's where, uh, you know, where I'm like, where would I go for further studies? And 
I wouldn't say that, you know, like any other child, I had Ivy Leagues on my mind. I wanted to go to the best of schools. Also because I felt the need for ballet. I'm also not going to lie about the fact that today, if you ask me, I wouldn't have cared so much about going to US. But that time, it mattered because I needed validation. I wanted that stamp of a great alma mater, right? That I went there because I felt I, I wanted to be accepted more. So that's where the education wanting to go to US came from. And also, you know, in Bengal, education was very segmented. You could do an MBBS or law or chartered accountancy, uh, and engineering, but if you wanted to do something a little more on the other side, which is economics, arts, pol uh, political science and all, you did have some of the best universities. So I came to Bangalore and that's where I did my undergrad. But for postgrad, the goal was to get that stamp from a higher affiliate, but also be around people with whom I could learn more. You know, that's again something that that said that, you know, you want to surround yourself with not just people like you, but people other than you to kind of have that cross-level learning. So that's why I went to US to study my uh, postgrad. Yeah. And that's where you had your first experience of entrepreneurship. Uh, tell me oh, about that. Yes. Oh, that's phenomenal. You know, there's one thing that US does is it pushes you to think differently, you know. Uh, of course, we are a young country, uh, very young in terms of our independence or thought process. We still have a little bit of the managerial mindset or the colonial hand. But US has had many years of experiences in building entrepreneurs, right? Means that's how the, com the country has flourished because it's a country of immigrants, but they flourish because of the ideology of entrepreneurs. So when I was in school and it was one of the, you know, top most schools, uh, uh, you know, one of the top two schools and of course, globally, as well as uh, based out of Boston. And then um, I was surrounded by people who were constantly innovating, right? They are constantly thinking of new ways to make money. And it's, it's a hustler mindset. You were doing an MBA? No, I was doing a post-grad. So it, it, it's, you, it's not exactly an MBA, it's a master's in economics, right? So okay, it's, it's got a, it. Yeah, it's master's in economics. I did an MBA even later than that. I've done multiple other, uh, you know, master's, etc. But that was a master's in economics, in microeconomics. Um, and I was surrounded by these people who were engineering grads, you know, uh, grads who were basically from MBA, and, and, and they're all thinking, they're all hustlers. They're all thinking of making money quickly, uh, smartly, uh, at a young age to be more self-sufficient. And this school had people coming from many different backgrounds, you know, not very illustrious money family. They were all taking talent from backward classes with the idea to make an impact and difference. And that's where I founded my first company with a co-founder who was an engineer, an ad tech company called ACT, which within two years got acquired. Uh, we raised money, uh, you know, both from the institute and from external uh, investors. But it was an amazing experience, you know. At that age, I was I was just less than 23 years old, uh, you know, doing something with people who were smarter than him. I'm telling you very honestly, you know, I had a co-founder way smarter than me, and he taught me coding. So, so these experiences is is something that I think India still. Now it's reached a stage where it's learning, but that time it, it wasn't pretty much there. You know, the late 2000s is not there. Yeah. Uh, what was the product? Uh, the ad tech product? So How we are you making money? Yeah. So we were basically helping FMCG brands identify the fastest ad network to monetize based on the product. So if somebody is, is promoting Florex, right, they would figure out maybe the news channels are the best because that's where people spend more time and the product like that will convert there. For other brands, for example, something like Detol, which is an antiseptic or Brute, which is a 
you know, uh, what you call it. It's it's it, it's uh, more of a deodorant. The channels for you to reach were very different. And we were just at a stage where social media was picking up. You know, it was just boomy. So it was super interesting because people were experimenting with social media. Plus, uh, you know, um, aggregator networks, partner networks, affiliate marketing, which is speaking up. So we were helping identify and they would intelligently place the ads online using our network. And for every ad placement, we would get a certain percentage. Uh, how did you get the intelligence of which ad will work where? Uh, yeah, so we were basically using crawlers, uh, crawling across 250 live data sources, and then using machine learning to do predictive analytics on top. That's how the ad monitoring and ad placement. So, for example, if you saw that a lot of shoes are being advertised on Instagram, then yeah. uh, your algorithm would recommend that if you want to advertise shoes, then go to Instagram. Absolutely. Not just that, the conversion. So if you see that advertisement was not the, the only metric, if somebody clicked, went to the website and stayed on that for conversion, and we had given those parameters, right? 30 seconds, one minute, one and a half minutes. Based on that, we would do ranking. And that ranking would be determining, determining where you should do the ad placement. So the but goal is, is that smarter conversions. Uh, this is proprietary data. How, how did you get access to this data? Like who clicked and how many seconds they stayed on the website? Oh, no, it's not. So so if you see, most of these platforms give you open APIs. Even Facebook does or Twitter does, right? How do you think these some of these SaaS products or analytics products that give you intelligence on social media are is the open AP, APIs, right? So you become a part of their joint development program using that API and they can give you further access because they know that you're you're basically not use, ut, uh, utilizing it for any other, uh, I would say, you know, wrong intent or wrong data optimization process. You basically subscribe, become a part of the joint development program. Even Google has. Google. If you see Google's black box program way back in 2012, 2013 was about that. Developer APIs using their data for ad and content monetization because they're also aggregating data through third-party resources and projecting. So you're basically building a layer on top of the operating layer and using that for predicting. And so you were building an ad network, essentially like an InMobi? Uh, we, were a we, were, we were a little different than InMobi in a way that InMobi created an ad network. We were more a protocol-based behavioral analytics. So we were a recommendation engine, right? So we were basically recommending, like if they used an ad agency, they would use our recommendation engine to enable better optimization. While InMobi basically became an ad content aggregator platform and much more than that. Yes. So you would further work with an InMobi uh, yes. to execute yes. the ads and InMobi would Absolutely. share the uh, commission with you. Absolutely. Okay. 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 Very similar to that. That, that. That's a beautiful anecdote. Yes. Mm. Okay. Okay. Almost like affiliate marketing in a way. Uh, yes. Like yes. But you're doing predictive. Yeah. Your predictive analytics yeah. and you're giving the power to the brand because typically what would happen is agencies played in the dark, right? The brands didn't know what was happening and you want to enable them to make decisions more intelligently. So it's more of the power to the brand than just, you know, the agent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so which year was this company acquired? 2014. Okay. Uh, and yeah. you had finished your education by then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way, way, way. I had already finished my education. Uh, by 23, I'd already kind of finished it and then stayed on for two years to kind of build this out pretty 25. Uh, by the time I was 25, it kind of got acquired and then I moved on, um, came back to India for a for a stay. Did you get a sizable amount of cash from the acquisition? Uh, I, I would say it, it feels good when you're a millionaire at 25. 
for sure. Wow, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, my, my dad until then thought I was crazy because I had a great, great, great job offer that I declined uh, to pursue this dream. So kind of, uh, it feels good. It means, you know, uh, that you are able to tell your parents that what I'm doing is is not just fun or uh, whimsical, but it also has uh, money and the sustainability attached to it. Because, you know, Bengali middle-class Brahmin families, they care about that. They don't care about if you're wanting to change the world. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Okay. So so you came back to India 2014 uh, then? Yeah. Uh, well, 2014, that was an interesting time. So I kind of started doing a lot of active investing. Uh, one of the things I got super excited about is, you know, what can I do post that? So... Uh, one of the things which I learned, uh, you know, building my first startup uh, was, you know, that the agency model worked very, very well. And I, on a side, invested in a company that was doing a lot of agency work for brands. But that was not my full-time gig. Like, you know, that was unspun. That was not my full-time gig. I was very, very actively involved with startups, uh, part of a lot of the mentorship program, master so, Which agency was this that you invested unspun. in? Unspun. Yeah. Unspun. unspun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this was, this was basically working directly with startups and brands to kind of, you know, what I learned from my first startup, kind of helping there. Uh,
So, uh, tell me the uh, the first product you launched and the journey of that. Because it's a very, also it's a very controversial category. You have to understand that you will never see, uh, way back then, I'm talking about it's almost 10 years back, when you are going to a CVS or a Walgreens store, you're not going to see the top shelves having sexual wellness products because it was still a taboo, right? Women wouldn't talk about them needing Viagra for, for their sexual needs, right? It's a very man thing. Now, how do you disrupt something like that? Where do they feel the safest? Online. Because you can't see me. You don't know who I am. I feel more comfortable to make a purchase because I have anonymity. You cannot figure out where I am, who I am. I can create any account and then as long as I have a valid credit card, I make a transaction, right? So the first product was AmpliSell, which still, if you go online on Amazon.com, is still one of the top sellers and, and launched this, uh, you know, uh, brand with testosterone boosters, female Viagra, and a plethora of other sub-products over time. But those were the like those were the two top sellers and then keto supplements. So testosterone booster alone, just the testosterone booster, no nothing fancy. Ampicel testosterone booster was selling half a million dollars a month by the first year. So imagine, yeah. imagine the like even even now if I just go online and do just a search and show you some of the brands you've never heard of Akshay, they do three million, four million a month, and these are all private label brands. So the private label revolution in, in US started and I was one of those first entrants, few sellers to kind of, you know, become million dollar sellers. And I figured out the map, how to do it, right? You kind of create and then you basically send through that platform, even if you have a cost of acquisition, which is a 30-40%, still the markup section. Your cost of production is less than $2. Labeling and all will cost you about $3. You have marketing, Amazon fulfillment cost, another $10. You're selling the product for $19.99 a capsule of 60 capsule. Imagine, and it's monthly recurring Akshay. These things, nutraceutical, health, beauty, skincare, consumables, are monthly recurring. They would do subscribe and save. So what is my cost of acquisition? Negligible. I acquire Akshay Mal once every six months, every month you will get for the next six months the same products. So there's nothing more smarter than that. And the journey started with identifying high searched keywords high demand, low penetration, and we use the APIs for that. We built a tool on top of it. Completely, our own private tool never sold it as a SaaS. But that's how pretty much the journey started. Uh, okay. Doesn't this need some sort of an FDA approval or something? Like, like They're all, and so the way it works is, and that's, again, a brilliant question. So this is for all the listeners. Guys, license and approvals is a big that we first today. How does it work? Is the manufacturing plant that needs to be FDA compliant? Is the R&D facility that needs to be FDA compliant? If you are starting up as a, a, a what do you call it, a D2C brand, you typically partner with a manufacturer because no D2C brand that a private label has the money to set up their own manufacturing plant. It's the plant that has to be FDA compliant. If the plant and the production facility is FDA compliant, it has a stamp of FDA on it. Because remember, they will never touch an ingredient that they can't sell. Mm. So that's that's the fund that. So similarly in India, the way it works is if the distributor that has the drug license, or the you know you need to have a pharmacist on record, or, you know in your facility if you're selling drugs, 
except for Schedule H. Of course, it's a different ballgame altogether. You need a Versailles license to sell food products. If you're importing beauty products, then you need a CDSO license. So these are different licensing requirements. Now, licensing in India is very different than U.S.'s FDA compliance, right? One should not confuse the two. There's nothing called as FDA license. FDA is specific to the manufacturing facility and all. If you come to GCC, I'm giving a little bit of extra gyan, Akshay, because, you know, the whole idea is for people to learn. If you come to GCC, you the distributor or you have to have an entity here that has to have a trading license. On top of that, for every product that is consumable, beauty, etc., needs to have either a license or product registration from municipality, which is equivalent to our facade, or MOH, which is Ministry of Health, which is equivalent to our drug license. So these are the requirements. And unlike India, India, you don't need to know every product. You don't have to register. In UAE and in Singapore, you have to register every single product. In GCC, because it's in Saudi as well. Every single product needs to be registered either with municipality or with MOH and they do a quality check. So these are compliance requirements which are very different than in region. Not going into Europe and Brazil and all. That's another ballgame altogether. But it's a good thing to know if you're a private label. Got it. Okay. Uh, you said this company was acquired and you got an exit of about $30 million. Uh, yeah. In how many years did it happen? Uh, what was the so was, uh, ARR like by the time it got acquired? Like just a so, quick run through of that journey. Absolutely. So in the first year, so this this I ran for about four years, Akshay. Uh, and the brands were individually sold out. So they were not like, you know, one company acquiring. There was no Mensa or Thrasio when, when I exited. It is all through Flippa and SE International. So these are market, these are, I would say, marketplaces where the brand meets a seller or a buyer. So if you own brands, you can list those brands up for sale. Then typically what happens is the buyer can be a company or can be an individual who wants to acquire that brand, which means you're going to give away your seller central access to them. They do a due diligence on the total seller, uh, you know, models, give you access to your seller central, we'll kind of, you know, do DD on all of that with your tax returns, etc. Typically, the way the math works in US is it's on profit. So the valuation you get is 10x of your profit. So that's a benchmark. So it, it's usually on that because, and then you have your inventory. So there's a valuation for your inventory, how much you're holding. Plus your trademark. So these are the three levels in which you get the valuation. And they were sold through FE International and Slipa. Some of the brands were acquired by now a very famous aggregator. I cannot name them, but uh, a very famous aggregator now in US. But some were by individuals. And one of and the, one of the brands, which was a sexual wellness brand, was acquired by a pretty large organization. So uh, that's pretty much how the exit happened. But when you ask me the ARR, let me give you some of the math. The first year, we did almost about six and a half million across four brands that we had that time. By the time I exited, it was about eight brands. But the sexual wellness brand always had the highest uh, uh, revenue because it had the most amount of sale, followed by a kid's health supplement line called Smart Vitamins. And then there was an Ayurvedic supplement line called Biotivia and so on. So, so those were the top three. And I would say the plate was 60, 25, very many things. And what was the ARR at the time when you sold? So 60% combined. was, yeah. So so combined ARR we were doing was about 18, 18 and a half to 19 million a year. Okay. Uh, and you were the only founder? Yes. I was the only founder at a team, but never took external investments, nothing. It was all my money that I kind of, you know, got from my first company that I kind of invested in. And uh, that's, that's kind of the exit. And, the team had equity. So one of the things I'm always a big proponent of 
uh, Akshay, is that you may have founded the company, but you can't a great company without a great team, right? So my team had substantial, a substantial part of the equity was for the team. Uh, of course, I still always had the majority stake. So, but the team benefited a lot. Like one of my team members says he bought his first uh, penthouse and the first car because of that, right? And that's, that's my dream even with Asidus, what I'm building right now. That is my, each of my top employees can get a 10, $15 million exit. I know then I'm successful. My metrics of success is not making money for my those people who have hustled with me get a great exit with me, and that's that's my vision of a great company. And uh, this business became profitable from the first day itself. First day, first wow. day profit means I, I'll tell you I'll tell you the story right. So when we listed uh, the first product, we did about five sales that day because we had not started marketing at all. Straight thirty percent, thirty five percent profit, right? Because wow. no matter what you do, you have margin. So there are times when we would give discount. We would list it at like, let's say 1999, give a 30% discount. No matter what, my cost of sale was never more than $10. So you can mm. you can do the math, right? So it's a cost of doing business. And what, what was it? I didn't have an office. Most of the team were remote. I had Filipinos that were working for me. I had people from Africa that were working for me. I would hire people on Upwork and Fiverr that were working for me. And less than five full-time employees. The rest were all outsourced. Because what else is there? To, you don't need anything else, right? Warehousing, it's Amazon fulfilled. You're just shipping the products. Who's making the products? The manufacturer. You're shipping. They're just doing the enabling everything. You give the MOQ. They get. Sh they, they ship it to Amazon. Then you're managing the listing, optimization, ads, selling. Simple. And you're getting the money in your bank every 15 to 30 days, depending on your volume. Amazing. 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 Um, why did you sell? Uh, I mean, you know, you... You could have taken that to uh, maybe a hundred million ARR in a couple of more years. Exactly what I thought. You know, one of the things which is super important to understand for all entrepreneurs, especially the listeners, right? A smart entrepreneur knows when to exit. Detachment is what makes you a solid, solid, solid entrepreneur. So, you know, the dhanda, the old school way, if you see the Tatas, the Bindas, or the biggest enterprise, either always worked with, uh, you know, uh, through mergers and acquisitions or have sold a part of their business when it was required, right? That's how the vanguards and the black rocks of the world has become what they have. So there are two ways people exit. You go public or you sell private. Now, I did think that I could uh, make that company uh, uh, Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson, but you're young, right? You're, you, when you're young, you think you know it all. And then you graduate. I, I say the graduation of an entrepreneurship, an entrepreneur, or an individual is from the know-it-all to let me get people who actually help me accelerate and figure out the know-it, not knowing it all. So long story short, I thought I'll become the next Procter & Gamble. That's the vision I started with. And I figured out the reason they are big as they are is because of cross-border distribution of supply chain. They don't do everything. They have the middleman. Now, the middleman in retail is what makes a brand sustainable, scalable, long-term, Memorable, right? I mean, that's the storyline. Simple. I create somebody else accelerate. But nobody was doing that when it came to e-commerce. And just like, you know, a few minutes back, I talked about the compliances, right? They're very stringent. So you you cannot yourself get a drug license if you're a manufacturer of the product also. You're, you're, you own the brand. So that's why you never see a pharma company own their own pharmacy stores. It doesn't happen. So there's, there's a lot of these compliance checks that are there. And I and I figured that then, this whole moat that I had created will not stay. And beyond this, 
scaling it to the next level would would be i would say and like you know then you have to take a lot of money then it's no longer your company and i'm like what is the smartest thing to exit now when the market is on you see today all the stories and i'm not going to name it you you and i have seen unicorns create and fail and somebody i just recently spoke at an event where i said i don't believe in the term unicorn they don't really exist right they're fancy don't exist you've never seen the horse with the horn and wings man that doesn't work that's why they don't stay for long even the ones that have gone ipo have all gone bust so and 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 i love rakesh junjunwala because he was one man who who knew this 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 fantasy will one day come to an end so i sold when the market was super duper hot i wouldn't have got the same money right Amazing. so i i'm like it's very smart to know when to exit and see also akshay i come from middle class background when i see money i take it simple right because i i told you what my dad told me right the shah so sanskrit joke if you don't know when to multiply your money you're an idiot so i took that i exited and if i didn't have that money i wouldn't have been able to build this idea right means today it is a way bigger giant than i ever thought or envisioned it to become and that money was necessary because nobody would have believed me and i, I would have gone and asked for money just to let you know and all the listeners that you know entrepreneurship is a hustle but as a woman if you're looking to raise money it's the worst hustle and it's not a worthwhile hustle to get into unless you have a very strong moat and profit on your books you're unnecessarily going to be banging your head against the wall and nobody is going to listen and you know the story of canva like 100 plus rejections i i don't have the time or interest for that i'm like i'm going to use my energy for the right thing so that's anyways i knew that was the right thing to do i did it took the money put some uh, as pinks deposit some you know funds that is going to give me a multiplication effect I have some public market uh, investments as well. I figured out one thing that my FD should take care of my life. You know, that's what takes care of my sustainability part because I didn't take money uh, salary from Asidus for the longest like until we raised the series I had to never take salary from Asidus. So that's kind of was my modus operandi that my basic necessity should be taken care of then everything else is fun, right? So I can experiment with it. So that's kind of uh, you know how I exited by 2017 2018 September 10 founded Asiders you know I, I'm like my mom and dad tells me stop and I'm like I've just got started when I put I put my benchmark 45 I'm done right I'm not doing this after that I have bigger plans and I'll share that with you but yeah this is pretty much it. tell me the process of ideation for deciding uh, about Asiders you must have evaluated ideas and come to a decision on this is what I want to build you know the reason the kachha banians of the world the, the reason rupa underwear did so well is because need is the mother of invention i do not agree with entrepreneurship that tries to create things you're not ready for what was my lesson of wanting to take aside is uh, wanting to take my brands global was that you need a middleman now the middleman in the world of technology is a middleware between the operating system and your and your and your last mile sits the middleware that acts as a layer that encapsulates everything utilizes the data for efficiency and builds an ecosystem on top of it right so that's what the, the amazons and the flipkarts did they didn't invent something they already knew people were buying, buying in walmart and stuff they knew this need existed they simplified it because people's time was the biggest asset they knew that people want ease of uh, doing transactions and ease of buying and they made the ease of buying as marketplace so what we what i did was i took that ease of buying on marketplace 
wanting to take brands cross border because I couldn't take mine. I said, as a middleman, you can do it. So let me disrupt something. But distribution has existed for 300 years. Uh, actually, I, I, I didn't invent it. I just innovated on top. I knew this is a multiplication effect. Because one, clients need it. The need was validated because I had the need. If I, as a young entrepreneur, needed it, then imagine how many brands needed it, right? If they need it, and if a brand sitting in US wants to enter India, you think it's possible. It's not possible. It's a nightmare. That's why Amazon started their global selling program. But because the nightmare exists and will continue to exist, I'll continue to survive and thrive. So the business is the boss, not the founder. So I built a Cydus to be a business that will be scalable and, and sustainable because it's funded by clients and it is recurring need that will continue even if I die. God forbid. It's the truth. That's why the best businesses are built with your basic needs. Haldiram is big. Himalaya is big because this, they make your life easy, simple. The, the snacks that you would have, otherwise you're now having in a package where you know it's healthy and all. That's why you buy a Haldiram. So, not that they invented that, right? It's they innovated on top of something that you've already invented. So, uh, we recently featured uh, Ace Turtle's founder, Nitin. Uh, Ace yeah. Turtle would be a middleman, right? Uh, uh, they've got like Lee, Wrangler, Toys R Us, uh, Babies R Us. They've got these brands into India. So you yeah. want to do what they are doing? Uh, or not yeah. you want to do, but so, you are so, doing so, what? So, like what's the difference? Yeah, so, so, so the only difference between Ace Turtle and us is that we are a full stack middleware. Now, Ace Turtle is, is like a enabler that does cross-border brand activation, right? We're not doing that. We're also the sellers. So what we do is, they do, let's say they're doing fashion. We're not focused on fashion. We're FMCG. We're in 20 countries. My goal is not to bring brands just to India. I am taking brands from Brazil and bringing to India, taking brands from India and going to US, Brazil, GCC, Southeast Asia, taking brands from Korea and bringing. So you see, I am a cross-border conglomerate that accelerates brands depending on demand, intelligently using technology in different countries. I am not going to get a Wrangler or, or a Lee just because India is a market I operated. No, if there is no demand, I wouldn't touch it. But of course, Ace knows there is demand, so they're doing it. We do the same thing in a crossword, but we are the seller. We take, we control the buying and selling of the inventory into it from all these brands. And we even tend like, a, like for example, a Unilever. Listen, this particular brand of yours is going to do better in this job. So we're helping you manage inventory and supply chain more intelligently. That's it. Uh, so, Ace Turtle is actually doing full stack, like Lee and Wrangler, they they do everything from design uh, uh, to merchandising, to opening stores, to uh, selling through e-commerce, uh, even manufacturing. Uh, uh, so, th the whole thing, basically what Reliance Brands does, like Reliance yeah, Brands. Yeah, see, that's what, so we, we are not that, right? See, Ace Turtle is a digital transformative engine for brands looking to enter a new country that has its own issues like what a Zilingo did in Southeast Asia to some level right we're not that they don't exist anymore but when they existed that's what they did they allowed you to find somebody who's going to do merchandising for you production for you you're going to launch the brand you're going to do marketing for them but that's a very different business model you're working with them as a partner for market entry and expansion we are not that we are working with a Unilever or a record or what to enable them to sell better on e-commerce marketplaces across the world by managing the distribution and supply chain. I don't know any manufacturing for them. They are already experts in what they're doing. I am helping them sell better, faster, 
giving them cost arbitrage and giving them analytics. I cannot name some of these FMCG brands, but let me tell you this. They use our data to decide on the acquisitions they're going to do. We are their partner for acceleration. We're not an aggregator. So why we're different than an April or an Ace Turtle or some of or Reliance brands is they are enablers to get market access. We are cross-border distribution and supply chain for sales acceleration, right? So when a brand finds it very hard to enter a market for production, they would work with an Ace Turtle to do that because India imports are so complicated. Unless you find a local manufacturer, it's very difficult for you to scale in the country. That's not, that's not an area we are interested in, right? We are, that's why we don't do fashion. We don't do accessories or anything like that. We are an FMCG, HPC, health, personal care, consumables. We do a bit of home and kitchen, a bit of consumer electronics. We are, these are big enterprises which are looking to reduce cost, to get better efficiency, to enter a market more quickly, and to not take the headache of managing the entire distribution and supply chain. That's why they work with us. Okay, got it, got it. So, uh, Ace Turtle is essentially India-focused only. Uh, first thing, second thing, they are full stack from uh, design to manufacturing to offline. Yeah, they're not uh, delivering. Yeah, we are not into designing, delivering you're, now. And all you're that, online yeah. focused, uh, e-commerce essentially. You are an e-commerce go-to market channel. That's right. So, typically what happens with companies like Ace Turtle and all is that the brand gets into a partnership, they'll have a certain budget, and after that, it is their headache. No, here it's a partnership. We don't buy inventory. We pay upon sales. We They stay engaged with us through the whole process. We are taking them while they still are hooked into how to optimize, get better data, to do better inventory planning. So it's a very different model. Our goal is not to just take them to the market. They control their, they control their manufacturing completely end-to-end because they never want to let go of that. They work with us so that we we help them with growth on sales on e-commerce and give them the data. Okay, got it. Interesting. Um, tell me about the first deal you cracked for this. What was your go-to market? You know, your zero uh, to one for SIDUS. I I think you know. See, there are some brands, of course. You know, we have an NDS. I cannot name, but this is, this is a huge pharma company, and, and and they don't mind being named. And I checked with them. That, you know, in India it was Supply. In, in US there were multiple other brands that we work with. Uh, but in India, the first one was Sipla because, you know, we're doing this podcast in India. You know, I want to definitely share this. Sipla had less than a lakh of rupees of sales when we launched them in 2018. Which country? This, in India. We started with India. Now we're taking them global, right? So Sipla Pharma, and, right? So Sipla Health and Sipla. So you know Sipla as a brand. This is uh, medicines or OTC products? All OTC, right? You can Everything what, that you can like, sell online is OTC. Now, OTC is factored into two categories, something that requires drug license, something that doesn't require, which is food. So we are selling their drinks called Prolite also. We are selling Cotex also. Nicotex requires a drug license, Prolite does. So there are these categories, right? So when we got them, we were the first to launch them on the marketplaces. They're still one of our oldest brands. And it's a zero to a hundred crore story. So... That's right. how big the brand is right now. And then they've acquired multiple other brands. They keep bringing into the portfolio. You know, we have become a partner. So Sipla, the way brands look at us, if they instead of them having their own e-commerce division, which will take care of growth and sustainability, scalability, et cetera, et cetera, they now have a partner like Asaitis. And now they want to enter five other countries. They don't have to look for five other partners. There's one of them. So that's where the name goes, right? We say perpetual growth by being next to you, aside us, next to you. So yeah. while we are next to you, we deliver perpetuity. 
So, uh, and what is the model here? Uh, it's a commission on sales or like how do you earn? Yes, we, we, we have multiple models. Uh, we basically have a revenue share model. Uh, it's like it's a win-win, right? Unless I deliver for you, I don't get a penny. So it's definitely like, uh, but, but I control the sales, right? I'm selling the product. So I control the entire inventory, the entire supply chain. The second is, of course, we have an analytics platform. Uh, we have a B2B shipping platform. So there are multiple revenue channels for us. But the biggest is the percentage of the total GMV is, is how we make our money. So uh, in a typical distributor model, uh, the company will sell its inventory upfront uh, and maybe give you like a 90-day easier same to thing. pay for it. It's the same thing. So, so they will it's sell the you... And, and, they have to, and they will take the return. So even in a retail model, if the products do not get sold in 180 days, the brands are mandated to take the return because it's also a, a, a policy of protection, etc. that is already there for the distributors that exist in retail. It's the same model. See, CloudTel existed in India uh, for a long, long time doing $1.3 billion of business. And today the chairman of CloudTel sits on our board, right? So uh, the, the, the model is very simple. Why did Amazon enter into a joint venture with Narayan Murthy to start CloudTel? Because distribution is an insanely money-making business. And it's a constant business. It's always going to stay. But when you don't comply with the laws of the land or uh, the compliances of the land, then you get kicked out. That's what happens. We're super compliant. Our focus is stay true, stay committed, and stay transparent, right? Whatever it is, that is something. That's why we give access to all the data, the live data to the brands. We have two patents uh, filed with USPTO for the technology we've built. We're filing a third one. Uh, nobody has what we have built in the past. It's you know so integrated, so cross-border, so multi-channel. You know, almost twelve marketplaces, multiple D two C stores. So it's it's a it's it's a big ecosystem now that we have built. But uh, in terms of the optimization and etc., like you said, so client, brands are already used to the credit period. Brands are already used to SOR as a model. We're just kind of amplifying. SR is like sell or return. Yeah. In, and in, in FMCG, it doesn't, it's less than 0.1%. Because customers cannot return. It's a non-returnable category. If they, Unless they say that the product is damaged where you cancel the order and it's the marketplace that bears the cost of it. But otherwise, it, it's a non-returnable category, right? So, so that's the advantage of being in this category. And that's why we don't do fashion. Because it's insane return. It is not a long-term solution. And also, Akshay, tell me one category that is inflation and recession. Only FM. Whatever happened? You've not stopped having your dal, your roti, your chawal, applying your skincare, buying your makeup, taking your nutraceuticals, buying your sugar pills. All of that will not stop. The world go to hell, it'll continue. So that's why. And also, they make the most money. You've seen the pandemic, right? Means that's where the money is. So, yeah. Your journey from India to 18 countries, was it uh, part of the plan on day zero or did it happen by virtue of customers asking that, okay, why okay, don't you guys... I say, the day zero is always experiment, right? means it started with US, by the way. First oh, it started with US, okay. Yes, so we are... We are this US was what, taking Indian brands to US or US brands in US? No. Yes, US, so we have three models. Home country home brand home brands home country plus cross-border or just cross-border so there are several brands which does the home countries themselves but we only do cross-border for them and there are several brands who want us to manage everything which means home country and cross-border right 
or just home country. So it, the initial year, the first year started with home country. The second year was home country plus cross-border. So that's how the multiplication effect happened because they want you to build trust and trust is where their base is, right? So that's how it started. So we are a U.S. Uh, you know, parent company, and then we have subsidiary in UK, India, Southeast Asia, which is Singapore. Uh, we have Denmark, we have UAE, uh, and and that's kind of the whole structure of how we operate in, of course, India. So, but we started with that. But the zero to one journey was starting with these home geographies, and then kind of you know showing the value that we can bring profitability and growth. But the way the company has evolved is by listening to time. You know, it's like when you, we grow up, right? Your parents. We always told, listen to your parents because experience is invaluable. Clients know what they want. They know their problems. And if you focus on solving that for them, they'll believe you in. Because they don't want you to experiment with their business. They want you to add value to their business. You know, nobody wants to take a risk on an existing ecosystem. They want to take a risk of adding value there. They're happy to kind of, you know, take a risk and experiment. So, yes, it never started to, uh, you know, to kind of, Go to the point of what you asked me. We thought we'll do US and India. The first two years was actually that. It's and GCC both parties, like home uh, country, yeah, yeah. home country, yeah, yeah, yeah. And both the border, yeah, and cross border. And then GCC started because again, clients started telling us, "Let's go there, let's go there, let's go there." We figured out nobody else was doing in in GCC right now. What Asidus does as a cross border, nobody else is there. We are the biggest players, right? So then came uh, then came Europe. Europe and UK. So first came UK, then came Europe because UK was just taking off. And we also follow, we always, I always give credit where it's, we followed Amazon's footsteps. They're the best market validators. They're entering a market, trust me, they've done the due diligence. They're not experimenters at all. They acquired, uh, you know, uh, Suke, and then that became Amazon and GCC because, you know, none of these international companies can enter these restricted regions without an acquisition. Then, of course, the local marketplaces like Noon, they're doing phenomenally well. So we're like, okay, GCC is the place to be high income, great penetration, great return on investment. Uh, you know, scaling is the next level of scale. Then came, of course, you know, UK and Europe and then Southeast Asia. So each one actually started with the client saying, let's go there. Right. And we were just, okay, let's go there. Now we're doing Brazil. We're starting South Africa. So these are all over time. We've added things over time. Europe just started, uh, you know, last year. Now we're accelerating it. You know, we're planning to go live in Brazil next year. So these are all things we've listened and learned. What's the process of opening a country? Like say Brazil. Oh, it's a long process. It's a long process. So you, first of all, have to understand the compliance of the region, right? That's the biggest uh, challenge. When you're there, the kind of operation uh, support you need, the local government, you know, the volatility of the market, like for example, Egypt, right? The currency is very volatile, extremely volatile. So we, we, we do a different model. We have a partnership model there. So it's like you determine on the currency, on the growth, on the internet penetration, on the you know, e-commerce penetrations. All of these plays a vital role in the, the, the political ecosystem as well, right? Because you don't want policies to change just like that and you get it. So several of those things are important. It takes about good 8 to 12 months of research and due diligence to enter a new market. But it starts with company registration, compliances, you know, setting up a partnership with 3PL. So it's, it's a long process. So that's why it's not like a overnight whim of going and entering a market. South Africa has been almost now 18 months when we've been doing due diligence on the market and now we're planning to enter it. Brazil has so, been more than two years. 
you handle uh, last mile delivery for all your brands or is it amazon fulfillment no it it's yeah. it's the marketplace so there are two models akshay so the marketplace takes care of the marketplace fulfillment so if it's amazon walmart ebay you know they pick it up from our warehouse and then we kind of ship it and, uh, on in most of the places we are seller flex seller flex means that you know our warehouses are kind of compliant with the standard of operations that these marketplaces require and we kind of fulfill that uh when we do d2c fulfillment which is also a pretty large chunk of our business it is the local uh fulfillment partner it can be aramax and gcc fedex and ups in us uh if we work with a ship rocket in india delivery depending on the geographies uh, shipper in cr so de- depending on the geographies and the type of channel where we are fulfilling for it's either amazon or the marketplace fulfillment or it's uh, the local partner that we already have an affiliation So this local partner would be an e-commerce sales agency. No, the local partner is uh is a logistics partner like an Aramax ah, or FedEx. Okay. Yeah. Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, okay. no, no, we don't work with any agents. Yeah, ah, ah, got it, got it. Okay, okay, okay. Got it. Okay. There are um, only two layers. Either the marketplace hmm. as a side assets between and the third part is a logistics partner. That can be Amazon or that can be Aramax. Okay. Uh, you said you have a B2B logistics arm. Uh, what is that? Yes, we do. We do. So we basically have ship with assiders where we already have existing partnership with all of the big uh, you know logistics partner that we talked about. So a lot of times uh, when you are doing an export or an imp- the paperwork is a nightmare uh, whether you're doing from India or US either way right in or out. So for brands it becomes a big 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 challenge to do it themselves. So we've built over time it's taken almost 3 years for us to build this uh, product and a platform where they can use our platform to choose a shipping uh, you know partner depending on the region where the shipper has the highest penetration and all the paperwork is automated they just have to print the shipping label put it on their box and ship it so which means if a brand has to ship their products from india to gcc they go on to ship with the siders finish all it and it's it's less than 10 minutes they can finish just print the label and done and uh, and we have something very unique which a lot of people we, we give you Uh, data on an ongoing basis for you to understand, you know, which maybe you need to optimize your shipping. Maybe C is better than you know air because you're doing the volume and where your cost efficiencies lie. So we give that level of intelligence so that they can they can work on their better. Okay, and this again came from customers asking you for it. Absolutely, I'm telling you, we are a customer led, customer funded, and a customer, uh, you know, uh, in I would say our innovation partners are our customers. right mm-hmm. complete end to end uh we're super grateful that when we raised our series a we had some phenomenal uh, you know investors who believed in us but that money is going for scale so we've never burned we'll never burn we are insane we're pack positive uh from the the second year of our operation from the last four years we've been a pack positive company so we were very reluctant to raise uh you know without being prudent so when we wanted to raise was because cloudtel exited and we wanted the market share so yeah uh, now short uh it's turning Listen to them; they're the best team. Uh, Pat positive is same as EBITDA positive. No, they're not the same. Okay. EBITDA, yeah, it, it's a beautiful thing about uh, you know accounting. EBITDA is your earning before tax amortization. What you're left with sometimes you may be EBITDA positive. After that, you're left with zero. Why after is that? All of taxes are after everything paid. We still have money in the bank. Okay. That is. Okay, okay, okay. So uh, taxes could be the difference between profit and no profit, basically. Of course, percent. Yeah, okay. And amortization. So a lot of times people are amortizing a lot of things, right? That's your, you know, uh, that's why earnings before taxes mean you have a million dollars. 
Okay. After yeah. everything you're left with minus, you know, twenty thousand dollars, then you're not a fat body. Right? Mm. Got it. It's it okay. basically after all that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So EBITDA is more of a vanity number. <laughs> okay. Okay. As I say, there are two two worlds that exist in the world of entrepreneurship. Thanda uh, world, the old school world, which is the Tatas and the Pindas of the world, which is I follow. Uh, versus the world which is about valuation which I do not follow because it means nothing it's only like you said a beautiful metric to get more money and that's not what I'm looking for okay um, so you know when you started the uh, health supplement uh, yeah. business you used Amazon's uh, open APIs to tell you yeah. what uh, to build and sell uh, did that come useful here also? Like, did you go out to a supplier because you knew that uh, what supplier is offering will sell, that there is a demand for it? Uh, 100%. 100%. I always say this, right? Uh, like I told you, right? Amazon, eBay, Walmart, Flipkart, they're your best players because they are the closest to your customers, right? They, they, they know what the customers look for and the data is available. If you are smart enough, you know how to utilize the data for efficiency and scale. We, of course, knew. We, we, given that I sold health supplements myself, I knew Supply Health will do very, very well. And the thing was, it has a brand, it is a brand has a recall. So you always want to go after not reinventing the wheel, after optimizing and monetizing on existing brand recall. And that's what we work with, right? People were looking for those keywords. Supply had those products and they had the brand value. So it was a uh, did you make any bad calls where you took? Because see, the thing is, uh, absolutely, hundred percent. I did made a lot of bad calls, and that's an insult. You know, it's it's it's. it's I told you right. Uh, it's from the know it all to wanting to fix it all kind of a attitude. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah, you know, when you are doing well, and uh, we started with enterprises, we thought we'll do a great job with D2C, right? Because I came from the D2C factory. But I forgot, Indian D2C are all about the money that they raise. Most of them have no value. They lack quality. They lack long-term value. They, they lack the ability to go global. They cannot compete with the, the brands that already exist. Uh, of course, India was a late boomer in the D2C revolution. There are some phenomenal brands because I've invested in them. I know that they're phenomenal. But still, if you see for them to go, grow cross-border, it's not going to work, right? Uh, uh, so, so like I'm a big fan of because what Boat did was they knew the value and they monetized on the value and they, they understood that India is a price sensitive market and they went after that. But there are certain brands I'm just not a fan of and I know they're, 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 they're good. Uh, so, so the lesson that I learned was that just because I'm doing well in one segment doesn't mean I'm doing well in the other. We wasted a lot of our time and energy trying to scale this brand we didn't have it. So those were the bad calls. And then we quickly learned from that and we said, no, we're going to stay true to what we understand, which is enterprises and SME. Also, be, be a part of the larger vision. Let them acquire the D2C brands, etc., but not try to scale these D2C brands, especially from India. There's a phenomenal D2C brands who work from Israel and US and all that. That, 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 that. The mindset is very different, actually. The other thing is, I thought that because we did very well in US, we could do it. The mindset is very different. So learning, those were bad calls, right? And then I realized that, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, what do you call it, delegate those decisions to experts that we hired in the team who debate, deliberate, discuss, and then decide. So we have this formula. We say the 4D. 
all crosses and then we decide. Interesting. Uh, so what you're saying is uh, you went after these D2C brands like say Mama Earth yeah. and similar brands for cross-border. Like Mama Earth is already doing uh, D2C in India, which means they don't need you for e-commerce, right? I mean, D2C is essentially e-commerce. Um, yeah. So you were uh, offering them a cross-border, which did not work out for Indian brands going cross-border. Yeah, so I wouldn't pick Mama Earth as an example, but there are other brands. Like, for example, there are many brands which, which are phenomenal in India because also the compliances are simpler in India. When you want to take them outside, it requires a lot of investment. It requires a lot of capital exposure, which they can't take. Also remember, some of, so let me, let me segregate that every brand is D2C. Every brand that sells direct to consumer is D2C. What we mean by in the D2C parlance of India is the young brands trying to disrupt the consumer market, right? So they can be single brands, single SQ, single, uh, uh, you know, domain. Some is doing sexual wellness, some is doing pet care, some is doing children's uh, food. It is very complicated. Unless you have a diverse portfolio, you cannot monetize. So they need money constantly to support them to grow. So they're great for India, but you can't take them across. Because... It requires a different tenacity and a different, I would say also the money back, right? It means you work with a big giant, they will, they will be happy to get the market share by burning for the next two years. It's not going to happen. Right? I mean, in Indian D2C, right? Young brand. So that's the challenge. Why, why does a D2C brand need money constantly? Uh, and you're saying that because they don't have enough SKUs? Uh, what is the connection here? It's not between... just one. Just not, that's not one. So first thing is, remember, when you are, uh, let me put it this way, right? Now, think about a, man, like a condom brand like Manfines, right? How many years have Manfines been in operation? 20, 30, decades. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Decades, yeah. a couple of decades, yeah. right? Yeah. What yeah. do they have? They have market share. Now, you're a young condom company. Who are you head-on competing with? Somebody who owns the market share. He's going to keep you up. So what do you need? You need money for marketing. You need money for production optimization. None of these D2C brands own their own factories except for one or two. And where right. have they got the factory from? By taking money from investors. So what you're doing is, see, see the, see the, see the uh, you know, landscape. You're competing with the giants. To compete with the giants, you need that kind of influx of capital. The reason both did so well is because the ones that they were competing with were all external companies. So there was a story and an ethos, and that's what I love about so He knew what he was doing and what he was capturing and where the gap was. When you're competing with existing giants like a Mankind or a Glenmark or a HUL, they will eat you up. Why would they give away their market share? So what do you, what do you need? The deep pockets. It's a game of marketing. You need money to manage marketing. Where are you going to get it from? Investors. So you are going after the same capital and there are 20 companies, same product, where is innovation? The other thing is innovation. These giants have an R&D facility sitting and innovating and filing patents. What are you competing with? Innovation. So you don't have money for marketing. You don't have money for innovation. What are you going to do? Mm, got it. Got it. You yourself were a D2C founder in the US where uh, you built up profitably brands which had, uh, I think what you said is that th there was a need for it, but not enough catalog for it, right? Uh, th that customers were searching for it, but the catalog on e-commerce was not there. So I'm sure there yeah. would be such brands in India also. I would say this, right? Uh, your life is your best teacher. Where did I start my companies? All in US, not in India. What is the difference, Akshay, between US and India? The pricing. 
One is a quantity and a price sensitive market. The other is a quality sensitive market. The double standard is in the ecosystem, not me as a farmer. I'm smart enough to know and what works. I'm not going to waste my time. That's why I said I work with D2C brands in US because they have the vision, the money, the scale, the growth. The other thing, I don't take others' money to buy. I put my own money to build that company. So nobody can question me what I did with it. But when you're taking money from others, accountability comes in. Action becomes more what you call it, your, your focus towards action becomes more thought, thoughtful, right? Now, question is, the last part, the innovation. What did I go after and you answered it? I went after a segment that had high demand and low penetration. Do you think there are brands in India that are doing it? And even if they do, what are they competing with? Pricing. To make the product, if, you, if I sold Amplicel in India, I would have been a failure from day one. Who would have paid $19.99 for a, a bottle of 60? It'll be 400 bucks. So I chose a market where I could make money. You know, I, I, the, the theory when you say, why are Indians so successful outside is because they know your value and worth. Simple. And, I, and let's, let's, let's understand something. There's something called as nation building and being nationalistic. And there is something called as being prudent and pragmatic. I choose the latter. I love my country, but I know what works and what Works. I'm not here to disrupt something. And like I said, a true entrepreneur doesn't try to change the world. A true entrepreneur tries to change a small, low-hanging to optimize and scale the world. That is a smart. Mm, amazing, amazing. Okay. So, uh, what you're saying is that the uh, fundamentally Indian D2C is not. Uh, I mean, uh, these are all companies which eventually will get acquired, and that's how they'll reach scale. Like when an FMCG company. Either you are a both which to me is the best D2C brand that India ever produced. Smart, crude, pragmatic, went after a low-hanging consumer Consumer electronics is a monthly recurring, like I would say monthly is a recurring need because you're okay to give away a, a headphone and like, you know, buy it again. They went after what need is, you know, they went after what I did in US, right? Then there are brands that wanted to be a part of what you call it, say, you know, Behati Ganga. Let's all wash our hands. If, you know, you, it doesn't work. You can get Ganga if once can kind of, you know, flood you away also. But but the, the point is very simple, what you asked. There are some great D2C brands. Like, I love Snurf Farms. I think it kind of went after a very, very good segment, which is mothers wanting to give their children good quality food. And their quality is phenomenal. The second thing that you asked. I think some of the founders were super smart. They built because they wanted to get acquired. Like I did, built to exit. There's nothing wrong in that. They were not all looking to go IPO, right? They were looking that I make a good exit. And you know, there are enough stories of exit that has happened over the years. Endurama is getting acquired by Sipla, Oziba getting acquired by uh, Unit. Look, there are smart, amazing stories. But I give kudos to those founders because they were building to exit. They at least know what their modus operandi and exit plan is. But those that are thinking, oh my God, I'm going to change the world, sitting in India is not going to happen. So there are some great examples and I think that is enough. Less than 10 years, if we have produced a boat and a surf farm and an Oziba and an Enduramas, I think we've done a good job. So I don't think India is in a bad state. The US has taken many years to get there. It's just that some of the new age brands that are trying, here I think entrepreneurship has become more of, oh, you know what? It's fancy, sounds sexy, let's do it. Then, that is the problem. 
Got it. Interesting. Okay. So uh, coming back to uh, Sidus, uh, you said you have a couple of uh, patented uh, technologies. Uh, Patent just pending. Talk to me. Patent pending. So so okay. we have already. So we are. You know, one is coming this year. The other one is early next year. So uh, we have. Yeah. So so why I wanted to correct because you know haven't got the patent yet. It's patent pending. The application is already accepted. But in USPTO, the way it works is after your application is accepted, there's still a process if people want to. Race concerns, etc., because the patent gets granted for a ten-year period. Uh, so yeah, so that's kind of it. I'll let you ask the question. Uh, what are the these technologies? So, yeah, so so without delving too much into it, the first is the entire stack of from you know from listing automation to the fulfillment delivery with multiple marketplaces that we have built is first of its kind process based. We have a patent for ship with Asidus, so we basically have a multi-platform patent for that in terms of the automation of what we have. Uh, the third one that we have filed is the data in terms of what happens is we do predictive analytics on inventory planning and fulfillment, etc., which is over time become super, super strong because we use machine learning. So that entire uh, innovation is something that sits at the back end as an operating system that enables the rest of the system. So uh, your first one is like uh, when you onboard a brand, uh, there is a way for the brand to choose that I, I want to sell in these five countries. So that and uh, can tell you if they are the right countries for you or not. So it can okay. actually help you identify based on SKU. Imagine it can even tell the brand that you have, it leads the label and tells you, so that's where we use AI, tells you this ingredient is a banned ingredient in this region. You can't sell it. So you can't sell a testosterone booster or uh, ashwagandha or shilajit uh, GCC without taking special approvals. So it can even tell you that so you don't waste your time. Amazing. Amazing. So uh, yeah. like the journey of a brand from deciding to work with a cider still going live on e-commerce platform, that journey is what uh, you have created a, like a yeah. process you flow. Have a process of... Okay. Okay, okay. Back in how the engine talks to the different streams, how the data flows, it's basically an algorithm around it that we have built, which is what we have. Uh, yeah. uh, how does it happen? Uh, like, if a brand comes to you and then they go live on e-commerce platforms, what, what's the journey in between? So, to, so, first is we do, like, the seller qualify, right? We decide which SQs. Once we have decided that, we give them a projection, again, the machine over time has enough data to predict what we can sell, how much volume we get. Once that is done, we give them the purchase order, the brand supplies the goods to us. And after that, we have a listing automation platform where you can upload one CSV file and you can get published across multiple countries and marketplaces in less than 20 minutes. Once that happens, then optimization happens. That's where the manual intervention comes in. So while the machine does the upload and tells you that this is the right way to list, but you have to have a human intervention where it tells you can I, should I accept or should I decline? So that's the only human interference we have. And then after that, it kind of, the, as, as the orders start flowing in, we basically, the closest warehouse based on the customer's pit code will identify the order from which platform, where, warehouse should pack fulfill. The logistics partner comes in twice a day, takes the order, ship the line. Everything happens in less than 14 hours, pretty much. And then you, if you're the brand, Akshay, you sit just like you are right now, log into the dashboard and watch line of data on what is happening in Japan. So whether I'm selling in Japan or Singapore or Europe or UK or US, you know exactly how many units, how much of sales, fulfillment data, cost of fulfillment, 
because we run the ads, you get to see keywords we have built on. So we'll give you full transparency. And then if you want to change the pricing, you can play around with it. The goal is, it's still your baby. I'm the caretaker. It's a joint, you know, you, you don't lose control on your baby, but you also need me as a governess to take care of the baby. So that's the whole idea because you don't have the time. And want to take that. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Uh, how does the product get to different countries? Like if they want to uh, start selling in five different countries. So uh, you will place a purchase order and then uh, you will through it the... It depends on the brand. Yeah, it depends on the brand. So either the brand can ship the products to us directly into the country, into our warehouse so that they get the, uh, you know, uh, the uh, export benefit or we can be the exporter and importer on record. Okay, so exactly. so you, you you buy it in the country of origin and then you export it is the, one option that or is the brand. Way. The second is the brand. Like for example, somebody like a Unilever, you know, they're international. They can give you anywhere the products and then you start selling. So, yeah, depends. We 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 have that full flex. We allow the. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Got it. Uh, how do you do cataloging uh, in an automated way? Is there an API? Or, or I, yeah, I thought Amazon would. Well, one, of them, uh, one of them has an API. No, you can. Catalog is an API, of course. So if okay. you hear all these SaaS products that were built to do catalog, it's because they give you API, right? So the thing is, we're not a SaaS product. We don't sell the product. We, we sell, we, we are kind of, you know, a platform as a service, a pass. So we, we kind of use the APIs, which is already integrated into the OMS, WMS to kind of build everything. Okay, so something like, say, Unicommerce, which is a SaaS platform for managing your uh, e-commerce sales. So, so they have an API yeah. through which they do the catalog creation and all Absolutely. of that. Okay, okay, okay. Got it, got it. Okay, okay. That's clear to me. Uh, the, uh, uh, so uh, you also spoke of an analytics uh, product. Uh, can you just spend right. a minute on that? What Absolutely. does that do? So we, are, we, we have like a seller hub. So that's what I said. As a brand, you can log in and see what is happening with your brand at an SKU level in multiple countries and marketplaces, one uniform analytics platform. So it's like a unified dashboard. No matter if it's your D2C store, can be Shopify or any other store, or your Amazon or your Walmart or your Flipkart, all integrated into that. So whatever sales, whatever market basket, repeat purchase, pin code, where is the highest? Imagine you, you, you can even figure out, maybe you didn't even know that Calcutta has the highest concentration of customers buying your products. So you want to do a retail activation. So now we've changed the secondary data to become the primary method for doing offline activations. So imagine how we've turned it in the red, right? So that's online. So you can see it live. So you have the confidence that nobody's playing around with your brands. There's no manipulation of data. Okay, interesting. Uh, you also, uh, like you spoke of some uh, companies using this data for deciding on acquisition targets. So, so you sell this data access as a service? like. Yes. So we don't just send it for acquisition, but it's it's our own like platform as a service, right? So they when they're signing on to our uh, platform, they already subscribe to it and it is only for our clients. We don't sell it outside. So it's for a client. Only when you're a client of Asylus do you have access to it. Also that way we're protecting you from any kind of data leakage, etc. So we are yep. giving the client or the brand the access to this on a subscription level. It can be a monthly or a yearly subscription. And because they see the market basket and their repeat purchase, and there's a lot of other data, data on the sale, on, on the entire basket of sale, they get to see repeat purchase and they know the market basket and they know brands to go after. Because if somebody's buying Oreo with your uh, milk regularly, then maybe this is a great acquisition. 
So. Ah, okay, 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 okay. So uh, the uh, e-commerce companies share the entire cart with you when when somebody is checking out. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have to know we are the fulfillment arm, right? Except for the logistics, the warehouse is fulfilling products to but, us. So, so this is like the cart of products that you are managing, not the cart uh, of his uh, the customer. Like he might be buying ten things out of which five things are being managed through Osiris, the other five are not. So Never. you come to know those yes. five. But, but you, but you, but you know that no, you can buy the, you can look at the full cart. So basically, Akshay, you go to Amazon, you are picking up a Sipla product, and along with that, you buy another brand's product. When uh, when both the sellers get let's, whichever the brand the other seller is versus and us, whichever whoever gets they see the full order. I will fulfill Sipla, and the other brand will. That's how it works. Ah, amazing! So yes. so that's yes. very very rich data which you have then. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Of amazing, course. amazing, amazing. Okay, okay, got it. Uh, cool. So, uh, you know, why would a Unilever? not want to do this in house because eventually uh, i'm sure unilever will realize that this would become sizable maybe one third of the sales would happen through e-commerce one day today it might be say single digit percentage but the trend is definitely there that one day one third of the sales will be through e-commerce why would they not do this in house when everything else they're doing in house like all the other channels they do in house why would they not do this channel in house so there are three parts to this question the first part, why is Unilever, why does Unilever not become a Walmart? Have you ever wondered why does Unilever products sell on Walmart and why did Unilever decide to not become a Walmart? The first thing is compliance and regulation. It's a competition law, right? The second thing is, why would they get a Microsoft license, like you know, thousands of employees globally or an SAP or anything like that? The second answer is, it's called focus on your core and optimize everything else with experts, right? The reason multiple companies over time has come and evolved is because everybody wants to focus on their core. If they want to do it all, then they will never be able to bring, build a healthy bottom line. It is called the economics of scale. The third part is Unilever doesn't do it all. That's why they have a distributor in three. They create, it is the retail distributor that takes the product to the wholesaler and the retailer. No matter what you do, Unilever will always find a way to make their bottom line more healthy and profitable and have an expert manage the entire supply chain so that they can focus on their core, which is building and buying products. Got it, got it. So offline uh, is already happening like this. There is a person in the middle uh, who is... Uh... Distribution, as I started the podcast by telling you, distribution is a 300-year-old industry. Mm. That's why I quit my brands and started this because this was a given demand. We just had to figure out a way to automate, optimize it. It's mm. never going to go away. Right, right. Interesting. Do you see an opportunity of getting into offline distribution? Because I, I think offline distribution is totally unorganized, right? I mean, there's no large player there. These are like each region would have one. You know, like Delhi might you always have, have to have. I think each region will always have that because, again, there are laws, governing laws that kind of manage it. Offline distribution is a different giant by itself. Uh, of course, in future, you know, we we'll definitely consider omnichannel to partner with offline distributor because we get exclusivity for most of the brands we work with, and when we get them into a region, we can still control the online and the offline distributors can buy from us. But we'll never become the offline. So because remember, brands work with us for data. You can't manage data there. So uh, when I 
fulfill the purchase order from the offline distributor, I will know that this is the demand I've generated and that's where the data will end. You can't go beyond that. Also, Akshay, why to bite more than you can chew? This itself is a $15 trillion economy. I'm just looking to do billion dollar in GMV in the next eight months. So you're saying 15 trillion is uh, global e-commerce market size? Yeah, okay. for HPC. I'm just talking about HPC. That's a TAM. What, what's HPC? Sorry. Health, health, personal care consumer. So that's ah, FMCG. Okay. That's 15 trillion. So well. I, even if I, if I do 20, 30 billion in the next four, five years, see, I am not here for valuation game like I do. I believe slow and steady wins the race. PNG is a 183-year-old company. It's slow and steady. I'm not trying to change a model and trying to build it in 10. It's not going to happen. I, I want to learn, adapt, and learn, adapt, and grow. So it's a step-by-step -step process. It just don't want to grow. It doesn't. It's not going to happen. So we are very, 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 very prudent. Like, you know, that's why passion and prudence should go hand in hand. I'm passionate about what I'm building, but the business is the gross. That's why I'm very prudent of where we want to go. It's a step-by-step -step process. We're not looking to change or just because it sounds great on books to do things. No, we want to stay profitable. That's my bottom line. Uh, would you want to do private labels? Uh, I mean, because you've, no, you've built the pipe. Never, never. never. You know, see, that's It'll one thing. Again, improve I, your margin profile. No, the, the thing is, you never should violate the very ethos on which you build the company. The reason I exited my private label is because you can't compete with your clients. I'm not looking to become an Amazon and exploit the data of my clients and use that to build my own private label, which is against competition law. Why would any brand trust me, right? I will never do that. See, for me, business is about ethics. It's about trust. I'm not going to go against that to make short-term gains. I'm not going to you know, lose the long-term trust of my brands. And, and here you can, you know, it takes a lot a lot of time to build credibility. It loses a date, you know, get out of it. So I I, I don't want to do anything for short-term gains. Mm, got it. Okay. Uh, tell me about your funding round. Uh, how much did you raise? Why did you decide to raise when you were pat uh, positive? Uh, we decided to raise only because of Cloudtel's exit because they left a big, big, big market share. And I thought that that's going to be like, Everybody believed that that's going to be the big thing for us uh, because we are cloud telling to, you know, multiple other countries. So we could kind of monetize and optimize it even further. So that's why we raised the capital. Uh, Cloudtail is, is uh, doing like exclusive, yeah. uh, was doing exclusive yeah. uh, distributor deals. Uh, like Cloudtail would be the, but Cloudtail is only doing Amazon, right? So it would yeah, be different. That's, that's, from... that's what I said. So it's, that's why I said it's Cloudtail plus into 10x, right? Because I'm, I was doing Cloudtel. I'm, I'm a Cloudtel plus multiple marketplaces for multiple geographies. Yeah. Because the brands had exclusivity with Cloudtel, even for Amazon, which is the biggest, right? You couldn't take them away. So it was 1.3 billion of business they were doing. And, you know, about 200 plus million was just coming from HPC. So if you had to go after these brands, you needed deeper pockets than just the profit that you had in the bank. So we didn't, we went, we raised the money for scale. So that's the first part of your answer. Did that thesis prove true? 100%. Uh, 100%. We have quadrupled our revenue. Quadrupled. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. See, I, I, I told you, Akshay, we do not do anything without betting it a hundred times if this is a correct way. So we, we did it. And that's why today the ex-chairman of Cloudtel sits on my advisory board. So we have had Carlos Cashman, who invented the concept of, like, you know, Thrasio is the first 
parent of aggregation. He's he's an investor and sits on my board, right? So we have we have got people who believed in it and then done it and were the founding fathers and they said, What you're doing is amazing. We want to support you in this journey. So yeah, we we vetted it, we validated it, and then we went ahead. Uh, the round was a 15 million, went up to 17, um, and we were oversubscribed. And and and, and uh, it's, it's it's been a phenomenal journey so far, and we're super excited for the for the for the next few years ahead of us. And yeah, like I said, slow and steady. Uh, how much did you dilute for this 17 million? For any Series A uh, founder, I own way more than anybody can imagine. So I still control way. Forget about majority, way yeah. more than majority of the companies. So yeah, that's how I'm going to keep it. So it would be like a single digit percentage, maybe high single digit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing, phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Uh, though you could have put in your own money uh, because I you did. had that I already 30 did million. Put in my, uh, I already put uh, in my own money. Otherwise, Asiders wouldn't have been able to survive for five years. We just turned five in September, you know, to mm-hmm. 10, 10. Uh, like I said, I have always believed if you can't put your skin in the game, don't expect to take anything from anyone. It just doesn't work. Like, so no, I mean, I you know, this is the first time you're raising external capital. Uh, yeah, yeah. You could have continued to fund it through your own uh, kitty or, or was your no, kitty like... like yeah, uh, so, so I, I, had, I had a substantial amount of my kitty that I had already kind of, like I told you, invested. Right, manage life. You know, I had a lot of other investments. Right, um, right. Also, also being... Also, the, me and my dad run a charitable foundation together, uh, which works with Ram Krishna Mission, various other, uh, you know, institutions to support uh, education for underprivileged women. And I, I've always been a philanthropist, like you know, very young age. Also, because I believe that without giving back, you never get back anything. So a pretty large sum was uh, put there because we don't raise external money in the foundation. Put in whatever from the family we can to support because uh, that's what I believe in. That's the right way to give back. And I'm an LP in a lot of funds. I've invested in a lot of uh, you know uh, startups. So there was one part of the capital that was kept for that. And later was of course for my own investments, etc. So I'd already invested a substantial amount of my own money into the company where I felt that this was enough. Right. Also, you know, we had a lot of investor interest. We wanted to kind of get the right, right strategic investor. Uh, and build a good sounding ship. Just you will not get good people to come in if they don't have a little bit of skin, in. right? So we got the good people because they and they're all experts in the industry that they are. They're coming, uh, so that's something which was essential for us to go to the next level, right? We need the good people to guide us to the next. Level. So yeah, right, amazing. Uh, are you still an active investor? Can listeners of the show send you their pitches? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm I'm very much an active investor. What's your thesis? What kind of businesses do you invest in? Uh, you know, what are your filters? In, you know, one D two C brands, uh, new age. Uh, you know, segments that have not been explored before. And the good thing is, when we invest, we also kind of you know try to help the brand accelerate, get the right accesses, etc. I invest a lot in fintech, a big area that I'm super super uh, bullish about because. That's a no-brainer again. Long what term, what within all, fintech like lending or uh, cross border cross border cross border okay. lending great 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 uh, cross border payments is a huge 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 area lending is a huge area so I'm super super uh, bullish about that. Uh, my one core thesis is that I do not touch a company that at least doesn't have one woman co founder. Uh, you know, uh, if you do not have the extra X chromosome, which women have, we have two X's, 
I don't think a man, a lot, lot of the failures are actually just men-led company with all due respect. So have a woman Except for Zilingo. <laughs> yeah. well, that's, that's, you know, again, you never know, right? We, I, I'll tell you something, Akshay, it's more than what meets the eye. Uh, so, and I, I, I cannot, of course, disclose about those things on the channel. I, I have myself seen a lot of, um, lot of uh, ugly side to this industry when I was raising my capital. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, there's no smoke without fire. Uh, let's just put it this way: that there was one Zilingo, but there are hundred others. You see the Baidus of the world, and if, then why do we only glorify that one woman? That we don't know what actually went on, right? I mean, sometimes it's is the reality of life. Let's just take it that way. So, so what I would say is that you know, that's one of the theses that I have. The other is MediaTek. I think that's a huge opportunity. Content is the king. You're doing anything disrupting AI, generative AI. I'm super duper passionate. No bullshit. Do not on paper that, oh, I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. AI, just if I, I say the word AI, remember, I know the difference between AI and machine learning. So you can't sell me shit. It doesn't work. But yeah, you have a solid company solving a real, real hardcore problem using generative AI. That has a use case more than happy to support because I also try to do something actually. When I invest, I try to find right partners to help them get the money they need to accelerate the business when it comes to clients, right? So I like to help that way. So those are my thesis. I also invest in um, funds, so funds which are new age, you know, if you're a new money manager, new age fund, again, you know, doing something, I'm big, big, big on supply chain and distribution. If you're disrupting something around that, happy to because focus funds have done well uh, that's what that's what if you see uh, you know the history says so don't try to do it all rather focus on a domain and that keep that focus I'll, I'll be more than happy to evaluate that and what kind of check size do you write for startups anywhere between you know 150 to I've even done a million dollars yeah okay got it amazing it's the highest okay okay all right amazing uh do you want to share your mail id for people who want to send you a deck or they can just go to a website and yes i have uh you know show um so drshomdata.com is my website if you just go to contact us i have a team it's not personally me i have a team uh, that basically looks into it but they're super responsive you usually get somebody you know thing is interesting uh no fab they get back within 48 hours and uh I also want to be absolutely honest, Akshay. I do not go into the first pitches until it has been vetted by the team. Then I kind of, I like to always meet the founder, have a cup of tea, not just Zoom. I'm a very in person. I'm still very old school that way. I, I believe until you sit across someone, you never get the vibe. So yeah, that's how it works. We don't do more than six, seven investments in a year. Uh, picky, but those we do, we kind of want to support them to kind of you know scale and so on. So yeah. Mm, all right. Amazing. Cool.